Saver 2011. Coverage by Craft Beer Radio from Friday, June 3rd. Private Tasting Salon. Three years of bourbon barrel beers with full sale. My name is Jeff Mendel, and I'm uh, one of the partners at Left Hand Brewing Company in Longmont, Colorado. Also on the uh, events committee of the Brewers Association. And I want to welcome you here to Saver and our... uh, our salon on uh, barrel-aged beer from uh, Full Sail Brewing Company. I want to make a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, Saver is brought to you by the Brewers Association, which is the national nonprofit trade association representing small and independent craft brewers. Among the many activities the association coordinates in addition to Saver is the Great American Beer Festival and uh, the publishers of craftbeer.com. Now, in addition to you all who come to the event, and the brewers downstairs who are pouring their beer, you'll have to bear with me while I read you a list of our sponsors. Ray's Beverage Group, Brewery Oma Gang, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Samuel Adams, CraftBeer.com, Allagash Brewing Company, Brooklyn Brewery, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Victory Brewing Company, Crosby and Baker, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, Oak Beverages, and Spiegelau. Thank you for bearing with me. Also, all Saver salons are recorded for podcast listening by CraftBeerRadio.com. All right, so now our, the presentation that we'll be doing here, we're featuring Full Sail Brewing Company. We have uh, two principals of Full Sail, Irene Fermat and Jamie Emerson, and what we're going to be talking about here and tasting are a vertical tasting of barrel-aged stouts. Is that correct? Imperial stout. Yes. And uh, I think this is a pretty exciting opportunity for you all because, in my opinion, whatever that's worth, barrel-aging is, uh, I think, one of the great creative outlets for our craft brewers. And there's some amazing things that can be done with beer on wood and we're going to get a chance to taste some of that and also get a chance to compare how wood-aged beers age over time. So, uh, wasting no more time, Irene and Jamie. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's so exciting to see this whole event grow and the level of enthusiasm about craft beer. Uh, Full Sail started almost 25 years ago, and when we started, there were less than 15 craft brewers in the United States. This year, we've hit over 1,700, and there's 600 more breweries that are in the pipeline. So the whole uh, excitement about craft beer is something that, for someone like us who's been around for a long time through it, is really exciting to see. Um, Full Sail is an independent, employee-owned company. We were started in September of 1987, and when people ask me, why did I start a brewery, I would say that it's probably the only way a woman could have got to run a brewery back then, and maybe now. (laughs) So uh, when we started, our original brewmaster left very early, and I needed to hire another brewmaster. And every resume I got basically was an MBA who wanted my job, and I kind of liked my job. And I finally saw a resume that I really loved and hit the spot, and it was someone who said his objective was to master the art and science of brewing beer. And that was Jamie. And so I convinced him, since he was living in the Midwest, and I thought convincing a 25-year-old guy to come out to the Pacific Northwest shouldn't be too hard. I convinced him to come out for six months and try it out. Well, we fell in love, been married for over 20 years, and he is our brewmaster and we're our business partners. And back in 1999, some of our original investors decided they wanted to uh, take some money out of the brewery and we were, had six people on the board. Four people voted to put the company up for sale. Jamie and I voted not to. When you're a brewery in a small town, you really feel that you're a really responsible part of that community. And we just didn't want to see the people we had worked with side by side and build a brewery be left with nothing. So we decided to do an alternative bid with an employee buyout. And so since 1999, Full Sail has proudly been employee-owned and independent. And we take a great deal of pride in that because we feel in an era of lots of mergers and acquisitions and people feeling like the individuals and the people who work in the companies are expendable, 
we really made a stand and said we didn't think so. And every day, everybody who works at Full Sail just keeps validating for us what a great decision that was to do. So thank you for being here. We're thrilled to have you tasting some of my personal favorite beers. And uh, Jamie will describe what you're tasting. And also, throughout the whole thing, please ask us whatever questions you want about the brewery, about our beers, whatever you'd like to know. We're happy to answer it. Our favorite subject, kind of, so. All right, hello everybody. Uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, we poured a beer out because it's always hard to have people sitting and not having anything to drink because, uh, you know, I can talk a little bit more about the process, but what you're drinking right now is the 2011 Black Gold Bourbon Barrel Imperial Stout. There's a pattern to production at Full Sail for these barrel-aged beers. Every year we brew either an Imperial Porter or an Imperial Stout. A portion of it's released in 22-ounce bottles or draft, and the rest is racked into bourbon casks and released the next year. So this beer was actually brewed in December of 2009, racked into bourbon casks in February of 2010, and then packaged in February of 2011. So right now in the cellar, I have Imperial Porter aging in casks for release next year. So what we have tonight is a skip series, all Imperial Stouts, all aged in bourbon casks. And to here to talk a little bit about the acquisition of bourbon casks is my lead brewer, Marty Brennan. Hi, thanks everybody for, uh, for coming out and joining us. This is a uh, very special treat, uh, even for all of us from the, uh, from the brewery and our friend Dana Elliott at the back, who, uh, who you got to meet on your way in. Um, we go through every year dealing with a uh, broker out of uh, Kentucky. Uh, we've got a, a very nice, lengthy relationship with them so that uh, we are able to negotiate a uh, situation where we receive these casks from the distilleries within, uh, at the brewery in Hood River, Oregon, within 10 days of being emptied. So um, because we're on a tight timeline for making this uh, turnaround happen in the brewery, it accounts for uh, a full 40 hours worth of labor for about six people um, to empty and fill these casks. They're stacked three high in our cellar, which is a very inaccessible place, uh, and uh, where we lovingly take care of them for a year. So they're kind of squirreled around in, uh, in every available spot where we can. Um, but we receive these barrels due to the uh, tight timeline of when this needs to happen in our production schedule. Uh, we work closely with them to try and get a variety of different barrels. Um, but we really don't know what we're going to uh, receive because they receive them and ship them back out to us so fresh. So in this vintage that you're tasting in the 2011, this is a, uh, a marriage of two different uh, vintages from the Shenley distillers. Uh, one was an 18-year. They have the uh, date that they were filled stamped on the barrel. So uh, one had held uh, Kentucky bourbon for 18 years before it got to us. The other uh, set, it was about a 50-50 split, had held uh, bourbon for 20 years. And so uh, we added an extra year of aging with the uh, Imperial Stout, and uh, I think the results are, uh, are pretty spectacular. The other beers that you'll be trying, uh, 2000 and... Yeah, go ahead. Only with what's in the barrel. We don't blend it with outside beer. So it's 100% bourbon. It's 100% bourbon barrel. Yeah, so we marry all the casks back together. That's another big, uh, big portion of drawing them back out of the barrels into a single tank together. Uh, we taste each barrel before we uh, put it back into the mix just to make sure that um, it's tasting up to quality standards. In and other then, words, there's some advantage for all this physical <laughs> labor. You know? And we know our brewers are really passionate about brewing beer because this is such an intense labor of love. How much do you think each of those barrels weighs? Oh, they're, uh, they're 100 barrel, oh, there's a, they're 100 pounds empty, and then they hold 53 gallons, so they're 500 pounds each. So you can imagine, our brewery is fairly automated, and this isn't a totally, completely manual piece that we do, so we're really glad our brewers are into it. <laughs> Definitely. They are, so... By a... By law, right, or by, law. by definition, for yes. the uh, for bourbon, they can only use them once, and uh, we choose to only use them once as well. Um, we have experimented with doing some other beers in there for secondary fillings, but for this beer, we uh, we use fresh barrels every year. 
So the, uh, the 2009 vintage that you'll try had uh, a couple different distilleries in it, uh, the Dant and, uh, and Jim Beam. And then the uh, 2006 was completely from uh, Buffalo Trace. And uh, it's pretty interesting. In the last couple of years, we've taken and, uh, and pulled individual barrels and put them in kegs and poured them at the release so that we can taste the, uh, let everyone taste the differences that take place in the aging process and the different whiskeys that are involved. So it's, uh, it's pretty fun. We've got three different ones for uh, this next year coming up, which are uh, Maker's Mark and, uh, and Wild Turkey and uh, Jim Beam as well. So. so if you're fortunate enough to be in Hood River or Portland during the rollout, you can actually go to the pub and get four tasters, one from each of the individual casks and one of the blend to see the difference. And they are different. And of course, people say, oh, the blend's the best. It's like, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would be released, if, if you watch the website, we make an announcement, but it's typically the middle of February. Okay, the, the casks are emptied in the first week, we package, then we rack new casks, and then we do the release party. But, uh, you know, the odd thing is, you make bourbon, it's essentially a beer, right? It's malted barley, corn, wheat, depends on what they're making with it. They make a sour mash, which means they let lactic acid go, then they make a high-gravity fermentation, 8%, 9% alcohol. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Bourbon County, done any of the tours, uh, anything like that. It's a fabulous place. Some of the counties are dry, though, so you can't actually drink it when you're there. But uh, post-fermentation, then it goes to the still, and the liquor that comes off is clear. And it goes in the cask clear. And the color that comes out is only from the char inside and the wood itself. And so that aging, you know, there's no caramel added. Like, you know, cognac can have caramel. Uh, but by law, bourbon can't. The cask can only be used once. Um, we started back in 87, 88 was, Amber Ale was one of our first big beers, and then Imperial Porter was one of the first specialty beers we made in the fall of 1988. We had a visit from the distiller master at the McAllen, and he was, oh, a little younger than me, and he was saying, oh, you should, should put your beer in some casks. And, uh, you know, what do you mean? And he says, well, they bought all these casks from Kentucky because a good Scotsman wouldn't waste a cask, right? And sherry casks, you, you look at all, all the things coming out of scotch now, uh, and then they use them and reuse them. And so they have this inflow, constant influx of casks from the United States. So that's when we started looking at the bourbon barrel aging, and we've been doing bourbon barrel aging uh, 15 years now. But not enough to ever get very far because, as Barney says, it is truly a labor of love. And if we make 4,000 cases, that's probably the outside. So this beer, as a stout, uh, pale ale malt, pale malt uh, caramel malt, has roasted barley, has some black malt in it. Uh, it's brewed at about a 9% alcohol content and then racked in the casks. And then, of course, the angel share happens. Evaporation occurs. And it comes out of the cask about 10.2. And you know, people say, oh, it's all the bourbon in there. It's like, no, there's, I guarantee you the brewers are very careful about <laughs> draining the bourbon out of the casks because it's uncut bourbon, 20-year-old uncut bourbon. Needless to say, there's some competition on <laughs> who gets to keep that. Um, and so what you get in this beer, the first beer, as the youngest, if you smell, there's a big vanilla character on the, the top hit, and then you get some wood. And there's also the beginnings of a kind of a black cherry ester that comes from the dark malt. And caramel, and maybe a touch musty, but not, not out of style, right? Not out of place. And then you drink it. And the, you can tell kind of the youth piece. There's, um, it's still a little bit hot. Um, you get a kind of a dark malt and bourbon mix in the flavor uh, and, and a very low ester content, very low sweetness. And as we move down the aging, you're going to see some increasing in oxidation and some sherry, sherry notes that come through and make it very interesting. We do have some food, some snacks to serve, but they're going to come at the end because anything you pair with this either just probably be blown away, essentially, uh, because of the flavors. Well, part of what we're trying to... Uh, have you guys experienced too is what the age does to the process as well and it is 
nuanced. I mean, you can, you should, really will be able to tell the difference, but um, we wanted you to taste the beers first and then we'll bring, we have a cheese and a chocolate to taste with the beers that we think both of them are pretty spectacular. We actually did the chocolate last year. Again, it's a chocolatier from Washington, D.C., and he uh, was a pleasure to work with and does a wonderful job. But one of the things at Full Sail that we really uh, strive for all the time, our goal with beer is about balance. Uh, it really is about this sense that even a beer as big as this, with as much alcohol as, as it has, it really has uh, a balance between the malt and the hops and the alcohol so that it's very rounded and very smooth. And as the beer gets older, you'll see more and more of that balance and that smoothness as well. I think another thing that uh, is interesting being where we're at in the Northwest is we are very close to the source of all of our raw materials. Um, all the barley malt that, all the barley we use is grown in Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, and Idaho. Of course, all the hops are grown in either Yakima or south of Portland. And we have great relationships with, uh, with not only the growers, but then also the maltster and the hop processors, which are all very local. So we have access to some things that other breweries don't have. Uh, for example, the maltster who is taking the barley malt and sprouting it under controlled conditions to make malt as a process, uh, he has several things going all the time. And so um, we do a program internally at the brewery called Brewer Share, which when each of the brewers makes beer. And it's served on tap in Portland and on tap in Hood River. And right now we have a, a Czechoslovakian pills that's in ferment. And he actually had a pills malt that was available, a low modified, very European style malt that wouldn't normally be around in an American malt house. But since we know him, and he called and said, hey, you got a use for it. It's like, sure, perfect. Uh, the other thing we've been working on, Barney has been working hard on, is a relationship with one of the hop breeders. And we've been trying future hops, essentially breeding programs that are, of things that are coming. Like Sriracha Ace and Citra came out of this program, two of the big hops right now. And what you, we got a bunch of these samples in, flowers, and you rub them and they smell good. And so Barney took some pale ale, put some dry hops in, and we capped them off in the pub. And the first time we got one out, well, you first know. of all, I was very excited about this whole thing. I thought, wow, what a perfect social network piece, right? So we Facebooked away, Twittered, and told everybody, come to the pub. We're going to do this experimental hop. What was it? How, you know, we're going to do the keg. And so we did. We uh, did the experimental hop. And it was Hop 462. Hop 462. And so, so we tapped it on the bar, and we poured out Had a lot of people there. Yeah. A lot of people there, and first taste of it. And it was like uh, like a an adolescent male's sweat socks. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. And uh, the packaging line supervisor, he's, he's trying it, and he says, this is tasty. And it's like, really? And he says, it has a lot of taste. Taste. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily a good thing. So we, so we realized maybe we run this program a little differently and let all our customers just taste for free. So we ended up buying everybody beers that night in the pub and realized this is still fun. Yeah, it was, it's it was a lot of... Okay. It's something absolutely cool about being so engaged with the source of production. And we're really lucky to be able to have that access. So we're still working at it. We're still doing it. But we're, making, we're having our customers be part of the tasting as opposed to, and they, they'll be able to tell us if it's tasty or tastes good. <laughs> Hopefully not. Uh, Hopefully not just tasty. Yeah, tasty is not a good word. <laughs> yeah, I think we've gone through about uh, maybe a half a dozen or more now and actually had a few... Uh, successes out of that too that show some promise so there might be some new hops coming on the horizon which is really cool because depending on what our feedback is to the hop grower he is able to say hey that hop really performed and really tasted and really smelled and really uh, came off on the beer the way we were hoping it would so we're able to have this really uh, tight feedback loop with both the hops and the malt which uh, really enriches the whole process for us and and for them as well all right, so the next one that has come out right now is the 2009. And so this was brewed in, again, December of 2007. And aged in casts then. And, you know, same recipe again, but with extended age and also the different casks. And so this one right now, you smell off the top, and the, the vanilla character is really subdued now with the age. And uh, there's kind of a, a, a sherry note going on along with... Uh, maybe a black cherry across the top. So and should you swirl this the way you oh, swirl yeah, wine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's aromatics. 
Absolutely. And because, it, because it's older, it has a little bit of funk on the front part of the nose, so if you swirl it, that'll dissipate, and you'll get more of the fragrant notes that sort of cascade through the beer. Yeah, you get, there's, a, there's definitely the, the, that cask character that comes through the, of the oak itself um, that, uh, I wouldn't call it musty, but it's, it's in that background, certainly. But then in the flavor, definitely has the vanilla. Definitely has some sherry going on. Also, you think about this, this is a, this is a 10% alcohol beer, and it doesn't drink like there's 10% alcohol in there. You know, They're actually wonderful over ice cream. <laughs> yeah, it Just makes saying. the best root beer float ever, yeah. except not root. <laughs> we had a brewmaster dinner in Portland, and the chef was very French, and it was one of the uh, more upscale restaurants in Portland, and I don't think he was enamored with the idea of a brewmaster dinner at first because he was very wine-centric, and then he really got into it, and it was the first time we ever had anybody do that. He made homemade Uh, French vanilla ice cream and then poured the uh, bourbon barrel over it, and and it was absolutely sublime. It was really the perfect ending to uh, a really good dinner. um, The other thing you... Go ahead. That's why Barney was here. Barney filled them off. What was, the, what was the Levens? Again, the bourbon, the barrels of the Levens? Yes. Shenley's, that's right. Shenley's was the one. Yeah. Shenley's. Most of our malt is uh, grown from barley that is grown in the Pacific Northwest, including Idaho. So uh, there is a small percentage that's grown in Oregon, but so far not that much that we're able to malt and use in our beer. It's starting to get more do you know the answer to that? I'm sorry, can you say that again? It's, it's really, really, really cool. We use all uh, two-row malt. Uh, majority of it sourced out of either uh, high states of, uh, of America or out of Canada. Occasionally some of the... Uh, yeah, Idaho I, is a big, big source I, for that. I really don't know any craft brewer who uses six-row... Uh, you could in the Midwest. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is being the proximity. Um, you know, I hate, hate to say it, but you know, with corn subsidies happening right now, it's putting the squeeze on wheat and barley. And it used to be that barley, you'd grow barley as a barley farmer. If you had malting quality barley, you got a premium that was better than, than what you would get normally. And with subsidy on corn, people are switching to corn, which used to grow barley. And so there's actually been less selection for malting barley than there used to be, say, 10 years ago. And so if you're in the Midwest, a lot of people grow six-row because it's a feed barley, and if it's what you have access to, it's what you get. And so we're actually very fortunate because uh, the people up in our area, the two-row grows really well, so we have access to a lot of two-row. Then, of course, right across the border then is huge amounts of of barley up in uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta. So, but... Right now, our, our blends are coming from Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, and Idaho, and it has been for, oh, last six, eight years. But that's one of the biggest challenges for brewers is that as more and more corn is subsidized to grow, at first, a maltster could pick only 10% of the barley grown. He could be that selective because there were so many farmers growing barley. Um, right now, it's probably 50%, and when we meet with uh, the maltster, He's saying that he can see that getting to that you're going to have to pick 70 or 80 percent of the barley grown, which is quite a challenge for all brewers. It's one of the interesting things about being such a small local company, and yet we really are very vulnerable to global pressures. Just a few years back, for every brewer, our raw material cost doubled because there was huge droughts all around the world, and the cost of our two raw materials, hops and malt, doubled. And you think that you, we would be a little bit more insulated from that, being as small and as local as we are, but we really have to deal with all of that. Who actually supports us with... Everybody from Oregon, I'm very proud to say. Really, all our congressmen and senators are terrific craft beer supporters. They actually uh, are the head of the Small Brewers Caucus. So I, I, I think one of them, are you from? 
I think one of the more interesting things about a craft beer, and I do a lot of the legislative stuff, is that it's not only fun and interesting, but we've been a really positive economic force. In Oregon alone, we've created over 5,500 full-time jobs, and this is in a state that's been losing manufacturing jobs daily on a regular basis, and uh, over $2.5 billion of economic impact. So not only are we fun and cute and taste good, but we also are a real economic success story. And, and it's one of the things that I'm really proud of. In an era where a lot of businesses are becoming less and less local, when you look at the fact that there are 1,700 small breweries right now in the United States, and we're all enmeshed in our communities. I mean, breweries are as capital intensive of business as you can imagine. So we are all constantly investing in our breweries, which makes us more and more committed to the places that we're at. We're not an easy business to just go pick up and leave and go someplace else. And I, I think there's really an element of carrying on a tradition that had been very much a part of American history with what we've done. You know, if you look at almost every small town in America, they had their local brewery, the way they had their local bank and their local department store. And we can't bring back the local banks or the department stores, but we're bringing back the breweries. Also, as we've been sitting and talking, and this older beer has started to breathe a bit too, the it started to soften up some of the some of the cask character, and you're starting to get soft vanilla notes in it as it sits. And it's an interesting thing because some of the characters are certainly volatile, and you see it in the aging of the cask, and also even just coming right out of the glass. Yes. Absolutely. Well, this is a beer that we really like to uh, serve to people who don't really get beer, you know, who are pretty wine-centric or spirit-centric, and it really shows a breadth of what beer can be. And I, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of craft beer is that we really have expanded from this very narrow beverage that you kind of drink just when you're thirsty to a, a beverage that you can drink in all these different situations with all these different foods, with all... Uh, different styles. I mean, it's so rich in possibilities that I, I think it's one of the most fun parts about being a brewer. All right. So you want to bring out number three? And we'll taste the next age. Oh, go ahead. No, no. Go. Oh, no, no problem. The barrels are fun. The barrels are... Yeah. I've got a 55 gallon that I bought off the claw a couple of months ago. Yeah. Well, the it's all American oak, absolutely. And then also from from this beer particularly, the only using the new casks from the distiller because you can essentially count on that the the, the cask going to come to you and it's sterile because it's had ninety percent alcohol in it for years and years, and so you don't have to worry about an infection. Uh, sour, right? We're not going for sour here, right? That's part of the thing. And once it's used that one time, then you can no longer guarantee you've got it clean. And so then it's like all of a sudden you're, you know, you're throwing the dice, right? And so what we've done is, is stick some very alcoholic beers in, like barley wine, as a secondary kick just to see if, if we can get something out. And uh, we've had a pretty good success rate at it. And so it's not a it's not something I would shy away from. It's just that with that knowledge that you've got to be careful. Um, what the bourbon distillers say is that French oak won't make bourbon. You make cognac, right? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's that blend of whatever is in that oak that's, that's giving up to the, to the whiskey that they're really concerned about. And they want that extra, I don't know, green character. That, you know, it's a... Oh, they they say absolutely. They're 100% different. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because it's true, right? It's trees grown one place and trees grown another. Um, actually, we've been giving them away, and we were trying to get people to use them for, like, smoking meat. It would probably be tremendous, you know? Uh, bourbon, barrel, stout, you know, oak, smoked, whatever, right? But mostly they get our employees take them and use them for gardening. Yep. Yeah, they make cool, you know, buckets. If you're in Oregon, if you're in Hidden River, we'll be glad to give you some, you know. 
bourbon instead of scotch barrels? Um, you know, partly because it's ease of getting them, right? I mean, uh, they'd have to come back from Scotland, and the Scots tend to hold on to the barrels quite a bit. You know, the um, I'm not sure if there is another liquor that's done like bourbon where they require the single use, you know? And so in other, other areas, like in Spain, you're making sherry or whatever, they'll use the barrels for hundreds of years. They, they think there's a character there that they want to keep. Um, yeah. Essentially. Well, but, you know, with that one, the single barrel... The distiller is supposed to walk through the aging house, and he knows where the optimum conditions are, and he picks a barrel that is supposed to be the best, mm-hmm. right? But essentially, all bourbons are blends of all these one-use barrels, essentially, right? Yes. Well, Do you mean uh, the question was to put the barrels to use scotch? I don't know of it. Scotch. Probably, probably yeah. the brew dog guys, right? The guys in Scotland with the mega beers. I mean, you have to have access to the casks is the first of it. And we, we just don't get those in the United States. They just don't come back, you know? And, and so, you know... There's essentially you're buying all these casks from a guy who repairs casks, right? Because they they bring the casks in from a distiller, and if there's a leaker, the guy repairs them, and then it gets sent on to Scotland. And so, great so what he's doing is he's he's taking all these casks that are yielding from everybody's cellar, which is a an odd thing if you're a distiller in that your your revenue is tied up in aging casks for years and years you know, before you make money on it. And all the whiskey that we get is packaged essentially in real time based on demand coming out of aging houses. You know, there's not like a big floor of it somewhere. You know, they're pulling those things out and going. And so once they get shipped, then they just don't come back. Oh, for yeah. It would well, be, for sure they would uh, be dramatically different because we can see the differences when we do the um, vertical tasting that we talked about just before we blend. You can really taste the difference between, especially people who like bourbon. You can really taste the difference between the Jim Beam and the Maker's Mark and the Four Roses, and all, it's really very interesting and. For somebody who really likes bourbon, there is definitely that element of the bourbon caramel notes in these beers, and the scotch would be very different, I think. I think it would be very evident, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Have to work on that. Yeah, we have to. That's a good idea. I, gotta, I do have to step in. The last, the last one is out, and this is the 2006. This was actually brewed in December of 2004 and racked in the bourbon cask in 2005 and then, then packaged in 2006. And you notice that the that musty character from the 2009 is kind of gone now, right, with the time. And what you have right now is that really soft character that was opening up in the 09 as it sat. And that's right in the front. The heat is all Heat's gone. All gone. The heat is all gone. Just round mm-hmm. and brown. It has a lovely kind of dark ball mm-hmm. character in the middle. No. No. It's almost like the one in between was kind of at an awkward stage that you had a bit more of the That's why you hold on to them. Yeah. <laughs> and that the, the, you can see it got through that sort of like adolescence or whatever and uh, matured. Yeah. So, so I've made an agreement with you 
Yeah. We've played around with some, some wine barrels, mm-hmm. for sure, and the thing you run into is the, the uh, you know, lactobacillus and mm-hmm. stuff that comes in off grapes definitely shoots towards the sour end, and you have to be super careful with it. Um, if you're shooting for a sour beer, you've you got to watch it and pull it because it'll go over the top, and, you know, you basically make vinegar. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a really balancing point. Yeah, because I, I'll, I'll say this here in front of you guys. Winemakers are dirty, okay? Spoiled grapes, we call them in the industry. <laughs> Beer is a beverage of intent, okay? Because you take our agricultural product, barley, hops, it's grown every year, harvested every year, and yet people want amber ale to taste like amber ale every time. They want pale to taste like pale every time. Winemaker comes in, they get the fruit off the vines, they crush it, you know, but wasn't 2000 great. You know, the art in winemaking is the blend coming off the casks. But what they get is what they get. Sometimes it's awesome, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's not. But also what comes in with the grapes is in the ferment. And you can't get away from it. You know what I mean? It's like we're pitching yeast and beer and you're controlling the ferment. But what they're hoping for is that magic mix of micro, microflora that makes this wonderful vintage sugar, acid, and bugs, right? And so you just can't count on it. That's the, that's the piece, right? So you approach it with caution, it may make something really interesting, but you don't know. Yeah, not that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for blending, good for blending, right? Uh, in Virginia and Maryland, we just came out uh, last year. It, you know, we're going to be 25 years old next year, and we've been very careful and cautious about how we expand our distribution. It's one of the biggest challenges, I think, overall for craft brewers. The distribution system in the United States basically works that you go through big brewery distributors. Um, you either choose an Anheuser-Busch distributor or Miller Coors. Not that they're owned by Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors, but they've been really built around those brands. And so when you have to be realistic and understand what a small part of the business we are, and you want to make sure that that distributor is somebody who's willing to take care of your brand and partner with you. And I always look at it, and maybe because I'm a woman and beer's so male-dominated, but the whole... Uh, part of uh, starting with a a distributor is kind of like you're dating and they're courting you because the way franchise laws work, once you decide to go with a distributor, you're married in a very Catholic marriage. So (laughs) you lose your control to say, hmm, a mistake. So you want to make sure there's a lot of good courting that happens before you finally commit. And, And then that has taken us, you know, almost 25 years to find a distributor we felt comfortable with to go, go with. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, one of the interesting things about beer and is that I think they are great with food and great with food in general. But the other part about beer that I, I think is really beer's fun. You know, it's a lot more low-key. It should be a lot more relaxed. I've always loved that about beer, that it wasn't pretentious. And, and as much as I love the sophistication of the beer and food flavors, at the end of the day, it should be about what you really enjoy and what your palate is telling you is a good combination. I mean, there's definitely guidelines, but at, at the end of the day, we became like wine. That'd be a bummer, you know? No. I mean, there's definitely... you want Well, the... You know, like this beer right now is very hard to pair something with because it is so dominant. So dominating flavors. I mean, if you guys have the chocolate-covered cherry left, um, that is, you eat the chocolate-covered cherry. It's a wonderful truffle, but then you taste the beer, and it kind of guts the beer, right? It's, it's the sugar, your mouth is used to the sugar, the sugar flavor is in there, and the sugar that's in the beer doesn't come across as it's overwhelmed. It does bring out the whole smoke and, and barrel toast kind of notes, and which is interesting, and then as, you, as it fades, the flavors change, but it's very hard. Same thing like with an IPA, something with extra bitterness. All of a sudden, it's like 
too much chilies or too much garlic in the food, it's, and it ends up only the only thing you can taste. And so if you can do careful balancing, I mean, what wine goes with salad vinaigrette? Nothing. Like none. But you can have a lovely pilsner or something that actually works with that, that, that makes a nice blended flavor that is more elegant than anything wine could do. And so part of it is being sensible, right, of, of uh, there are some beers that work better with roasted foods, you know, ambers, browns, some beers that work better with, you know, if they have multi backgrounds, dessert, bananas are always hard to pair with, I'll just say that outright, uh, you know, but I mean, when you start to look at it, you know, it's always red and yes, white. For some know. reason, our chef in the pub always wants to make bananas for brewmaster dinners. <laughs> we're always like, that's like the hardest thing. Yeah, banana cream is terrible. Very terrible. hard to pair with beer. But I, I think you're talking about basically complementing or contrasting. And so it is what your palate is telling you as you're tasting the food and how the beer reacts to it. I think one of the challenges is if you get beers that are too extreme, whether that be too sour or too uh, hoppy, then they overwhelm the food. And I think one of the pleasures of beer is that it doesn't tend to do that, you know, and, and that's why we really like beers that are very balanced, because the balance is part of it makes it go very well with food, and makes it, you know, you, we're in the business of selling beers, so we really <laughs> believe the German piece of the first beer should call for the third. You shouldn't have just a little beer and say, hmm, that was interesting, I'm done. You know, you should really, beer is a beverage of camaraderie, where you really want to have more than one. That's why you're drinking beer instead of a cocktail. And, and that pleasure of that beer is really what you should be enjoying. You know, and I would hate for beer to get to the point where people were intimidated or afraid to say, boy, I don't like that. I, I think one of the things we've always loved about this business is people were always very comfortable saying... Very honest. Very honest. And, and I think that's very important, you know. It keeps you honest as a brewer. Well, I mean, you, know? you guys go out to the restaurant, and you order a bottle of wine, and you're talking to the maitre d', you're talking to the, the sommelier, and you say, oh, well, I get these kind of things, and he says, oh, I have a great recommendation, and he comes. The wine's not corked, but it's not exactly what, what you wanted, but it's, it's okay. How many people turn it back? Right? Very seldom I've seen everybody turn it back. You'll, you'll have the wine. It's fine. Beer, though, I've had people... I pour them a pint, they taste it, I don't like that. And they expect another one, and you give it to them. And, and it's, it's not like they're being mean or anything, but it's just the, the beer is easier, it's more fun, there's more accessible, and it's part of the whole thing. If, if everyone comes here in tonight, has a different view, a different subjective palate, what they like, what they don't like, and if you come into the pub, we have a broad selection of beers on tap, and I talk to the people that work in the pub, when they, people ask you, what do you have, the real response is, what do you like? Because I can give you a beer that will fit what your expectations are. But if I give you something very mild and you're wanting something very hoppy, you know, oh, man, full-sale beers were bland. Or if you're wanting something mild and I give you something hoppy, full-sale beers were terribly bitter, right? And, and it's an interesting thing because everyone has a view of it. And honesty, I've... I've, I've Felt the honesty from the, the critics. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Of the three beers we've tasted, what do you feel is most successful about each of the beers? Is there a certain time frame you think each of these beers can drink? Well, I, I have to be honest. Uh, I haven't had a 2009 or a 2006 since we packaged them. <laughs> and so we hold on to some of these for special events. So it's much a treat for me to see where they're at as hopefully for you guys. And when you see people I always ask, how long should I hold on to it for? And it's like, man, that's a tough question. You know, I, I had a case, and my, I drank my case. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? How many licks to the center of a Tootsie Pop, right? Yeah. Three, right? And so, and so uh, you, know, you see the age, and it's really intriguing. And not all beer ages. And so to see the difference... It only, it only tells me right now, I would hold the 2009 a little more, right? It's kind of in a little stepchild mode. But the 2006, I think I'd be drinking it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's probably just like holding on to wine, right, that you've got to see it. So each of them are interesting in that it's the same recipe just executed over time. And we've already invested over a year of time on these beers, which for a brewery is a very long time. But I think it's interesting to see how if you're willing to invest more time in cellaring some of these beers, how they'll really pay you back. I, I, I actually think that um, 
taking a look at them kind of gives you an idea of what the evolution is like, and that gets you to appreciate the different uh, layers of flavor as they come up and down. Yeah, right. Unless you're actually blending, unless you've got a collection of barrels that you all draw from in each year, you're taking, they, they are kind of unique. They have unique differences. Yes. Yes. They're different children from the same special parents. So there's, there are differences to begin with. Well, let's say, let's say the, the, the dad is the same, but the cast, the moms are different, right? Boy, you but know, even you then, know, even then. That's really funny. I would have said it exactly different than that, you know? Well, just say it. Yeah, know? yeah. I think of the mom. The mom is the same, yeah. Well, but, 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 but some of the core elements that we're looking for in this beer are still there. You know, the, the caramel notes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you get the rye and the mix and all right. like that. Oh, absolutely. No, actually, I, we just put it out with a day, with a year on it. We put and it out with a year, and our press releases and our information about the beer says if you're patient. Right. <laughs> if you're patient, but everybody's well, not patient, and actually, I, I, tell I think the, the the right. And sell it. Yeah. I never. Oh I no, never, I meant seller it. I am not into <laughs> selling it. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a sad thing. Yes, the gentleman back then. Yeah. Right. Uh, difficult to do with uh, laws, you know. What? Yeah, you cannot sell beer directly to a retailer. You need a distributor, and once we assign a distributor, we're married. So we don't have a distributor in Washington D.C. We have a distributor in Maryland, and we have a distributor in Virginia. Yeah. So the beer was brought in for the event, and tax was paid. Yeah. No, no, tax was paid. No, no, because we're not selling the. Oh, that's and it's, right. The BA is a nonprofit organization, so it's it's different. Yeah. So if we did it for a nonprofit event, maybe. Like <laughs> <laughs> yes, we don't have a problem with uh -huh. that. Yeah. It hasn't been a problem for us. It's been a problem. Like the 11, 11 right now, the. This one is actually a little drier than what went in in 2006. Residual gravity was was a little lower on this, and um, it's interesting to try the unoaked cask comparatively because that's also available in the 22s and see the difference. And um, drier, a bit smokier, uh, and it's actually uh, aged out, rounded out very nicely. Well, and and. Just aging in general, you know, you're, even if you had the unoaked one, it goes through a, an oxidation kind of phase and everything. It just doesn't have all that lovely vanilla and oak, you know. <laughs> oh, no. Well, well, that's always a challenge. They were you know? experts in here. I, I know. You, should we have started with the oldest one first? Is that what you're saying? You know? We used to do that around family dinners and always go, do you start with the very best one first or leave it for last, you know? We leave it for last. Yeah. But Barney, Barney, we did some old, old beers, so you've got to talk about that. Yeah, you were, you were asking about, uh, you know, when to drink, you know, the beers. And uh, oh, right. that's always a topic of conversation because, you know, as Jamie's alluded to, you know, you always want to try them. And uh, they're only around for so long. But we did, uh, we've got uh, another one of our employee owners who's in charge of being our mad scientist down at a small pilot brewery in Portland, John Harris, who has his own walk-in cooler down there that uh, things mysteriously appear. And, uh, and disappear. And, and disappear. <laughs> and uh, we recently tried some 1995 beers that he had squirreled away down there. And uh, out of a round of four of them, uh, two of them had not matured very kindly, but uh, two of them were just sublime. 
and uh, and it's really interesting. You know, the uh, the just the continued progression of those uh, those aging characteristics, the sherry and and the rounding of the flavors and the complete you know complexity that is just buried in layers just continues to go. And so I think these beers have the potential to age for quite a long time and still be really enjoyable. Um, but it is really a test of willpower and uh, <laughs> and uh, inventory. <laughs> you know, I mean, we start out. It's this is a very special tasting, and I'm so glad that you guys have got to share it with us because these beers are not available to all of our employee owners back in Hood River. I mean, we are all allowed and uh, and able to uh, purchase some beer when it's when it's bottled, and uh, and then that it immediately sells out. So. We squirrel away a few cases of our own for special events like this, but most of these beers have been enjoyed and forgotten and uh, talked about fondly. And uh, there's a few of us that have some of these still stashed away at home and things like that and pull them out for friends. But uh, this really is a very special occasion to get to try some of these uh, some of these vintages. So Barney's going to hold on to his 2009s, what are you saying? <laughs> yes. And I'm going to drink my 2006s. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's really fun, too, to see the evolution of where people are so accepting of these beers and excited about them. Because when we first started doing them, people were a little skeptical. And the idea that you could actually keep a beer for so long and then ask to keep it longer was fairly unique. Even though Thomas Hardy had been doing 25-year-old barley wine for a very, very long time. It was something really outside of the American experience of how you drink beer. So for us, it's very much a statement of how evolved Americans have gotten in their relationship with beer. And the fact that you can visualize drinking this beer at the end of an incredible dinner and just sipping it the way you would a port, a sherry, or a cognac is a really cool place to be with it. Well, it's uh, called Brewer's Thunder, essentially, because... I don't think you make any money on it, but it is really cool. <laughs> this podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. To find more information on Saver or further podcasts, visit craftbeerradio.com slash saver or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.